0: The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on
1: SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Welcome to City Road on 2SCR 107.3. I'm Dallas Rogers. This is a story about how the financial industry and governments turned a housing foreclosure crisis for everyday Americans into a financial opportunity for institutional real estate investors. And like all good stories, it involves the management of the new post-GFC housing asset class with digital technologies and algorithms. Say hello to the automated landlord. Rosemary Fields, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, thanks for having me.
1: You've been doing some work on single family homes for a while in the US and your work really is located at the intersection between the tech boom and the GFC. Can you tell us a little bit about that connection?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Essentially, uh, a lot of the people that I've been speaking to about the single family rental model talk about this kind of 2008 to 2010 period as a sort of evergreen opportunity, because you had a lot of homes that had been uh, repossessed by banks, and, you know, were just extremely discounted in terms of prices. And you also had an explosion of cloud computing, mobile computing, new sources of data and analytics that could be exploited to identify desirable properties that were really discounted but actually in pretty good condition and would probably recover their value.
1: For those who aren't familiar with the GFC, can you just walk us through very quickly what happened there in terms of housing stock?
0: Sure, absolutely. So in the U.S., as in, I guess, a lot of other places, including Australia and the U.K., The housing market became a real source of economic growth over the past couple of decades. And so you had kind of governments um, and financial institutions promoting home ownership and property investment as a way of kind of attaining security and stability for middle class families. In the run up to the global financial crisis, what you started to see was financial instruments developed from mortgages, so they're called mortgage backed securities. Um, And Essentially, this involves financial institutions giving out mortgages, selling the mortgages off to other financial institutions who kind of bundle them all together into financial products that are appealing to investors. Mortgages have traditionally been thought of as quite stable and safe to invest in for that reason. But what we started to see in the, in the years leading up to the financial crisis was basically just a lot of kind of credit going into the housing market. You started to see investors in these mortgage-backed securities clamoring for more and more mortgage-backed securities. This meant that lending standards went down, and a lot of mortgages were made that weren't necessarily safe and that borrowers couldn't necessarily repay. So when property values kind of plateaued, stopped climbing, A lot of people were not able to pay their mortgages anymore, lost their homes to foreclosure. But because of the way these mortgages had been packaged into financial products and sold to all kinds of investors all over the world, it had effects that were kind of far greater in the global economy than they would have been if we weren't selling all of these financial Mm. products.
1: And is that what people call the financialization of housing?
0: More or less, yeah. I mean, it's interesting thinking about is mortgage homeownership itself a kind of financialization? And if so, then financialization has been with us for quite some time. But I guess I would think about it more in terms of what happens to those mortgages after the fact. And so we really saw a kind of transition from a model of mortgaged homeownership where local and regional banks would make loans and kind of sit on those loans and homeowners would pay them back over a long period of time to what is called an originate to distribute model, which you know, is this kind of idea of banks making loans and selling them off and then becoming fodder for financial products. And I think that's, when I think about financialization of housing, that model, this kind of originate to distribute model and the securitization as more the financialization of housing because then those mortgages are subject to the kinds of imperatives of global capital markets, much more so than they were in the kind of old originate to hold model.
1: So we have these new conditions by which mortgages are allocated and bundled up. What happens after the GFC in terms of the housing stock with those mortgages collapsing?
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of different things happened. So The,
1: the period GFC leading up to the GFC saw the banks reducing their lending standards for home loans. They bundled up these loans into mortgage-backed securities and sold them off to investors around the world. And in a now familiar tale, this eventually led to the subprime mortgage crisis and the GFC. They left those who had lost their homes largely to their own devices. And when people could no longer afford to pay their mortgages, a lot of these properties wound their way through the process of foreclosure and finally settled on the balance sheets of the banks. The US government famously bailed out some of the banks by buying up their so-called toxic debt. But what emerged on the other side of the GFC was a new housing asset class that was underwritten by two opposing forces. On the one side, the banks were sitting on a lot of property, and financial institutions don't like to own or manage physical assets like family homes. On the other side, Americans were having a hard time getting mortgages after the crisis because of tighter lending standards and many were turning to renting. This created the ideal conditions for property investors who thought...
0: Aha, we can buy these properties for a low price and we can rent them out to people who, you know, are kind of locked out of the home ownership
1: market. But before the institutional investors could bundle up these homes to create the new housing asset class, the government and the financial institutions needed to sell the idea of the single-family rental to the public and possibly themselves.
0: I think one thing was kind of this large scale single family rental model would be beneficial for all kinds of different actors, right? So I think part of it was saying, okay, you know, we've had what is called single family rental around in the United States for a long time. It's always been a part of the rental market, but it's never been something that's owned and managed at scale. And so the state did a lot of work to say, actually, if we can rent out these single family properties at scale, It's going to benefit all kinds of different sort of actors and institutions right so it's going to be beneficial to banks who don't want to be dealing with all of these physical assets it's going to be beneficial to the state because it means that there will be less kind of public subsidy of neighborhood stabilization and so forth it will be beneficial to homeowners so people who were didn't go through the foreclosure process but who might live in neighborhoods that you know had a lot of foreclosures and are seeing their property values go down It'll be beneficial to local authorities who are dealing with the problem of vacant properties and blight and so forth, and also to people who want to live in a suburban, sort of middle-class neighborhood, but can't buy a home. And of course, beneficial to all the financial institutions who used to be kind of packaging and selling mortgage-backed securities and who, you know, need a kind of new product to sell. So the state did a lot of work around sort of creating this narrative and then rolling out a very small pilot program where they said, we want to kind of pilot this new asset class. We want to take some government-owned foreclosed properties to kind of test the waters and see if there's an appetite for the idea of single-family rental as an asset class.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about the single-family home? It's not a term that we're overly familiar with here in Australia.
0: Yeah, so um, this has a lot to do actually just with zoning in the U.S. Different neighborhoods are zoned for different types of structures, and actually zoning areas for single-family home use was often a way of actually kind of keeping out poor people and people of color. Um, So it's an
1: urban planning idea. It's an
0: urban planning idea, and essentially a single-family home is kind of what you imagine when you think of, you know, Leave it to Beaver, or like kind of the suburbs in the US, Levittown. It's um, a house that's usually not attached to any other houses. Usually it's sitting kind of on its own plot of land. It's designed for one family to live in. Of course, that doesn't mean that's how they're always used. I
1: actually like the way that you put people in the zoning idea there we would yeah. call it we would call them dwellings which focuses yeah. on the house but you're actually talking about the people that are in there actually like that a lot.
0: yeah I mean, and it's also really normative, right? Because I mean, if you look to what happens in a lot of suburbs in the US today, you know, single family homes are often occupied by intergenerational households, Mm -hmm. by roommates, by multiple families. So it's kind of an idealized vision of how land and property should be used. Um, And that doesn't necessarily always match up to how they're used in reality.
1: Is this kind of like the state trying to solve a problem that it was partly involved in from the beginning? Or is that too simple a assessment of what's going on here?
0: Yeah, I mean, sure, the state was a big part of creating the conditions for the crisis, but certainly we can't pin everything on the state. Um, and I think it was a problem that was a long, long time in the making, right? So if you think about You know, the reason that people turned to home ownership as a way to secure their futures, that goes back to wage stagnation that's been happening for decades. I do think that the state was rather ineffective in terms of how it responded to the crisis and probably didn't, I don't think a lot of people saw quite a kind of how monumental the crisis would become. And I think this was a way that the state thought it could deal with some of the the kind of the consequences of the crisis once it became clear this was something that was really big, wasn't going away, and these properties were sitting around for years.
1: So we get big institutional investors coming in, buying large amounts of this foreclosed stock. But to create this new asset class, you talk about the need to create stability around this. Mm -hmm. And you said that data is very important to this process. Can you talk us through that?
0: Sure. So, as I mentioned, single-family rental homes have always been around, uh, but because they've always been owned by small-time investors, mm, they've they've existed as a kind of fragmented market. You could never really speak of a national single-family rental market. It's a series of kind of small and disconnected sub-markets. And because of that kind of market fragmentation, it made it very difficult to get a sense of what does this market look like as a whole? And if you're an institutional investor – You don't necessarily have local knowledge of all the different real estate markets that you might want to be investing in and this meant that there was a need for kind of new sources of data to think about what do vacancies look like in this market how does the single family rental market of phoenix compare to that of atlanta what do vacancies look like how do we set rents how much money will we be spending on maintenance and rehabilitation of properties so this became a real, a real challenge because these data sources simply didn't exist before. So what you begin to see as investors begin to think about scaling up large portfolios, you begin to see new sources of rental market analytics kind of entering this space, you know, cobbled together different sources of information to kind of provide a way of thinking about the market and a way that investors could then select properties. Can you give me
1: some examples of the type of data that they're collecting there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one provider is called RentRange, and they essentially buy up data from property managers, from landlords, property listing websites, and so forth, and essentially use that in a proprietary algorithm that they've created that will then kind of set rents appropriate to that particular real estate market. And I think this is really important because it allows investors to, to understand the properties of an individual home, as it compares to other similar homes right so it's a way that investors can classify properties and create categories within this kind of differentiate within this broader group of homes Mm.
1: and all this is important and new because of the scale of this enterprise
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, when you have 20 or 50,000 homes scattered across the country, you need to understand both the dynamics of the kind of the local property markets and how, you know, what kinds of operational expenses might be important in in a given market. But you also need to have a sense of how the portfolio is kind of working as a whole. And so you need Um, many different scales of data, right? You need data on individual properties, you need data on property markets within a metropolitan area, and they need to be able to zoom out and think about what does this look like across a state or across the entire country or regions of the country to kind of get that synoptic, that kind of picture from above.
1: And I guess this is where the tech boom comes back in and you've talked about the automated landlord. Could you just tell me what the automated landlord is?
0: I guess I would say the automated landlord is a way of kind of managing tenants and properties with much less face-to-face interaction, right? And so a lot of the interactions that, you know, we might've had with our landlords, either face-to-face or over the phone are now being mediated through smartphones, platforms, apps, and so forth. What
1: does it change?
0: I think one of the big things is that when you're able to have face-to-face interactions or over-the-phone interactions with your landlord, you know there's a person there even though that relationship can still be exploitative in various ways, ultimately you know that there's a person there. And if you know there's a person there, you can try to appeal to them in various ways as a person right so if you know you can't
1: argue with an algorithm
0: yes you can't yes as <laughs> Jason sadowski and frank pasquale would say you can't argue with an algorithm right whereas if you you know if you know you're going to behind on be behind on rent and your landlord is a person you might be able to kind of work something out with them if the only way that you interact with your landlord is through an app there's very little space for negotiation there it also means if there are sort of problems with how your maintenance requests or rent payments are recorded, it can be quite difficult to work those out because you're working through the technology rather than working through people.
1: Hey, you've been listening to City Road. Desiree has been talking about how the automated landlord affects people in the US. But these platforms and algorithms also change the structural relationships between landlords, institutional investors and renters.
0: So, if you think about the process of investing in rental properties, obviously you need a way to get the properties, to purchase them. And then you also need ways to kind of manage the properties as you go. And again, if you're someone who's gonna buy one or two homes, you probably don't need a really powerful algorithm to choose those homes. You're probably buying in an area near you where you kind of know a bit about the market and you have some local, some kind of local understanding of things. But if you're a large scale investor, you need to be able to identify properties for acquisition quickly. And this was important because A lot of investors were kind of entering this market space and there was an imperative to acquire properties at scale before property values began to go up. And of course, as people start buying properties, the values start to increase because demand is going up. And so one of the ways that investors dealt with this was developing what they call underwriting engines or acquisition algorithms that essentially take public data on things like schools and transportation and crime some of the rental market analytics from some of the providers that I already mentioned, and then sometimes incorporating their own observations of neighborhoods and sort of drive-bys of properties and kind of throwing this all into an algorithm that then helps them identify. These are the areas where there's a lot of properties that meet our yield requirements and then generate a maximum bid. So these properties were often acquired on the courthouse steps. In the U.S., usually every month there would be a sheriff sale of foreclosed homes. And so investors weren't actually buying properties in big bundles, but one by one. And so they were able to use these algorithms to identify the most desirable properties and then to kind of send people out with briefcases full of cashier's checks (laughs) (laughs) um, and say, you know, this is the maximum you should pay for this property. And so they kind of built up the portfolios that way.
1: It's a pretty radical rethinking of what the dwelling is, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it takes, you know, real estate investment is often a quite emotional process and a social one and one that's, you know, embedded in our life courses. And it really kind of takes that and makes it almost an industrial process. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of the investors talked about this idea of creating a production line or treating, you know, treating this investment like a a factory um, and needing to get this kind of assembly line going. And so when you're thinking about doing real estate investment at an industrial scale, Mm -hmm. you need different processes um, and different ways of kind of approaching it um, compared to if you're doing sort of individual property Mm -hmm. investments.
1: What about the operational functions? So things like property management?
0: Yeah, I mean, again, this is something that is really important for for an investor who owns several thousand properties. You're not going to be able to sort of pop in anytime a tenant has a leaky faucet or a backed up toilet or something, right? So you need ways of kind of, again, seeing the portfolio as a whole and understanding what are the needs of different properties? What stages are they at? Are you changing the locks and redoing the paint before moving tenants in? Are you responding to maintenance requests from existing tenants Does the lease need to be renewed and so forth? So a lot of investors have built kind of in-house operational platforms that essentially run um, on tenants inputting data through, for example, paying their rent by smartphone rather than writing out a check. So you automatically have a digital record of rent payments. Again, submitting maintenance requests through these kind of online technological platforms where tenants can take their smartphone, take a picture of something that might be broken in their home, upload it to the server... And then a work order gets generated and the landlord can send someone out to do the work.
1: Have you got some examples of those types of processes? Any companies that you've been researching?
0: Yeah, so there's a few. I mean, I think what's interesting is that some of these started with kind of in-house technology platforms run by institutional investors themselves. And now what you're starting to see is kind of tech companies coming into this space who don't necessarily own properties, but see that there's a need for these kinds of services one of the companies that I've studied is called Task Easy, and they're essentially a digital platform for yard care, snow removal, any kind of exterior maintenance of the home. And so they can essentially take contractors who do that work in a local area and then match them with jobs that uh, real estate investors need to be done. Um, And everything is governed through an app that workers have on their smartphones and the app does everything from setting up the list of jobs and the route that vendors should take as they drive from job to job It includes sort of check in and check out at individual job sites and before and after photos that the vendor has to submit to show that they've completed the work, you know, as it sort of states on the work order. And so this is also a way of kind of a new way of keeping tabs on workers as they go about their jobs.
1: It seems to me that the GFC created a fairly unique historical moment that allowed a lot of this to happen, you know, coupled with the tech boom. So where are these processes going now? Where's the automated landlord heading in the future, given that that might have been a once in a hundred years, maybe more phenomenon, hopefully?
0: Real estate investment is not going away, right? And so I think, Even if you think about the stock markets, the fact that interest rates are still quite low, a lot of capital is still flowing into property, people are still trying to secure their futures, their individual futures and, you know, the futures of their families through real estate investment. And so I think what you're starting to see now is now that these kinds of digital processes or, you know, the automated landlord has been kind of tested at the scale of the institutional landlord, you're starting to see platforms that are catering to small mom and pop investors. And again, this is setting up opportunities for more kind of distantiated real estate investment. And so the idea is you can invest in properties from afar. You don't need the local knowledge because the platforms kind of present everything to you in a transparent way where you can kind of choose the best real estate investment opportunity for you. And there's a whole suite of platforms then to facilitate the management of these investments from afar and so forth. So I think the real... um, The real kind of growth that we're seeing in the automated landlord will be less at the scale of the, the, you know, the big investors and more at the scale of individual kind of small scale landlords.
1: Unplug it from the institutional landlord and maybe plug it into the individual investor.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think there's also a way in which these platforms see that there's opportunities for them to profit without actually owning physical assets themselves. Right. And so it's a bit like some of the companies talk about we want to be, you know, the Uber of yard care and so forth. Right. So the idea that, you know, the real estate economy is is ongoing and these digital platforms are a way that tech companies can kind of get a cut of that real estate economy without necessarily taking the risk of investing in properties themselves.
1: Where is this going to in the future? Is this a good or is this a bad thing? Are there positives and negatives here?
0: Yeah, I I think it's, I hesitate to say whether it's a good or a bad thing, I guess there's just different dynamics that we want to pay attention to. And so some of the questions are around thinking about what opportunities do these digital platforms offer, right? And so there's, there's often the sell of convenience, the simplicity, being able to do things with your smartphone and so forth. The idea of transparency and efficiency, these are kind of buzzwords that you you hear around these platforms. And I guess what's important to keep in mind is that these are sort of opportunities that they offer, but those often also come at a cost. And I think the big things to keep in mind about digital platforms is that every time you're interacting with them, you're also giving up your data. And I think that is true for landlords, that is true for tenants. Um, And so it's just important to keep in mind These platforms are providing a service, but they're also collecting data that has its own kind of value Mm -hmm. um, and can be useful in other ways later on.
1: Desiree Fields, thanks for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me. Great talking.
1: Thanks for listening to City Road on 2SER 107.3. If you like this story and you want to hear more stories about cities and urban life, subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. All the details are on our website at cityroadpod.org. This show was produced by 2SCR out of the City Road Studios in the School of Architecture, Design and Planning at the University of Sydney. City Road is part of the Community Radio Network.